The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. How y'all doing? Amen. Universal unity is where we're at this morning. Universal unity, obviously, is one of the driving values of this church. I mean, we, we started out from the outset of, uh, of, of, of planning this church, thinking about what we see in this room right now. Uh, we started out from the outset saying that we wanted to create a space that basically people of all races, shapes, sizes, ages could come together and could fellowship together, grow together, worship together, and represent the king on mission together, all right? And so that's, that's what we started out thinking about, praying about, and by God's grace, seeing from the very onset and seeing from the very outset. And so, and so God has been blessing um, in a tremendous way. But I want to unpack it for you this morning. I want to I help you guys understand the heart of this particular pursuit. Why is it important to us? Um, you've, been, you've been with us now for the last, uh, going. On, this is actually our fifth week together, and you've been with us learning why each and every one of these values are important to us biblically. Christ-centeredness, compassionate conviction, um, our actual mission, and now universal unity. Why is universal unity important to us biblically? And in order to answer that question, I want to start back a few years. Let's, let's see if we can dial back all the way to the 1800s, 1845. In 1845, over 365 Christians vacated the common Baptist denomination of the day over an issue. Over an issue. There was missionaries that were being disciplined within this denomination because they were, they were slave owners, and there was laws being established within this denomination that said you cannot own slaves and be on the mission field because it speaks against what that particular denomination believed was a gospel ethic. And over 365 Christians in these states vacated that particular denomination, and they formed what was called at the time the Southern Baptist Convention. 1860, fast forward 15 years, one of the Southern Baptist ministers, pastor from Virginia by the name of Thornton Springfellow, defended the institution of slavery of millions of African men and women in this way. Quote, Jesus Christ has not abolished slavery by a prohibitory command. Under the gospel, slavery has brought within the range of gospel influence millions of Ham's descendants among ourselves who but for this institution would have sunk down to eternal ruin. Now, let me decode that for you. There was a idea that the curse of that the, there was the idea that the curse of Ham was especially geared and pointed to the African race. That has since been debunked, but you might even go to some churches and they still preach it. All right, that's terrible exegesis of the scripture. But that's not beside that's besides the point. The point that this gentleman was making was that by 
having slaves and bringing millions of Africans from their continent over into the states, the African Ameri the then African Americans had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so he rode the justification of slavery on the bandwagon of the gospel, saying that without slavery, these men and women would have never got a chance to receive Jesus. That was 1860. Fast forward century and a half, and just recently there was discussion about, is racial reconciliation even a gospel issue? And there was a gentleman who said, all Christians should be mindful of the gospel's demands for racial reconciliation and justice. But this kind of talk has become common in the postmodern church world. If we make it one of the gospel's demands, then we can't really question it. But I will. Is racial reconciliation a demand of the gospel? Seems to me that racial reconciliation is a good thing and is a social issue, but it's not a doctrinal issue and it's not a theological issue. And it is certainly not a gospel issue. If there is something biblical that expresses racial reconciliation as a gospel demand, I've missed it. Well, brother, I have come to help you find it this morning. In Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 talks about not just racial reconciliation. Ephesians 2 talks about kingdom reconciliation, people reconciliation, and those peoples being reconciled back to God. If you don't understand that, ra racial, that any type of people reconciliation is a gospel issue, then your gospel is falling short of the fullness in which God has intended for you to understand it. Universal unity is embedded in the gospel. It is part and parcel with the gospel. And we want to unpack that a little bit this morning. I want to talk to you about a couple of things, a couple of points. The first point is that our unity is established, or our unity, rather, is part of the gospel plan, what I just highlighted and what I just shared with you. The other point that I want to mention to you this morning is that our unity is, in fact, our unity exceeds our ethnicity and our culture. Our unity is part of the gospel, and our unity exceeds our ethnicity and our culture. And then the third point that I want to make this morning is that our unity is established in Christ alone. Our unity is established in Christ alone. Our unity is a part of the gospel. Our unity exceeds our culture and our ethnicity. And our unity is established in Jesus alone. So in order to understand Ephesians chapter, 11, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, or 11 through 22, it's important that we spend time, a little bit of time, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Okay? So let's roll our eyes up to the first verse in Ephesians, and there you'll hear the story of your salvation and the story of my salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. That is, folks, your testimony. That is my testimony. That is our testimony, that we were dead in the very sins that we walked in. The very sins that we thought were actually bringing us life. And for some of you in this room, maybe even right now, you believe are bringing you life was in fact sucking life right out of you. Keeping us dead to God. Dead to the sensation of God, dead to the delight of God and to the pleasure of God, unable to see him, unable to perceive him as he really is. Paul said it is the the same condition that we are all bound by, doesn't matter if you are Jew or non-Jew or Jew or Gentile. Black or white, Asian, Hispanic, we all have either been in this condition or we are now in this condition. There are only two people in this world, one that has been made alive from their death to sin and the other who is now still dead in their sins. Paul goes on and he says that not only were we dead in our sins, but we were carrying out the desires of the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We once moved, we were once moved by the rhythm of our passions. Unable to discern that these desires were in fact empty and unfeeling. Robbing ourselves of true, everlasting, and eternal joy. Cheating ourselves out of eternity. Like big, beautiful, empty pots with cracks at the bottom of it, as one of the prophets would tell us. Filling ourselves up on empty pleasures and going back to the pot and looking in it again and finding that there is nothing in there and yet trying to pour more satisfaction and desire back in it. Some of you keep telling yourself that these pots of desire will hold your satisfaction and yet every single time you run back to that pot, you find the same empty feeling that you had the last time you left the pot. The bitterness that maybe we keep running back to in order to deal with the hurt of our past, that, 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 that festered bitterness that we tell ourselves, that, that we tell ourselves this will help me cope with the pain that I've, that I've been dealt all my life. And yet it doesn't help out one single bit. The substances that we keep pursuing and abusing to self-medicate from the pleasures of this world. We tell ourselves that the prescription pills or, or, that, the, or that the drugs or, or that the lust, the pornography or whatever it may be. We keep telling ourselves that this will help me. And we find ourselves not being helped. Or even the prideful supremacy in your culture or your color that your family dealt you from the time that you were raised or from the time that you were born or that your church has fed you for years that drives you to hate others based on ignorance alone. Desires of the flesh, empty pots that can't hold any water. And yet all of this is only kept in a state before God. All of this is is kept in a state before God that we could not escape, that we were storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment because of these things that we kept running back to. The Bible calls us by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were storing up wrath as a product of these pursuits. 
This was our state before, and quite possibly this could be your state now. However, Paul moves from that dark and dire state to something so beautiful to us, or so beautiful to our ears, or at least it should be beautiful to our ears, and it begins with these two words, but God. But God. Amen, Robert. But God, there, there, there may not be two more precious or beautiful words in all of the Bible for your soul than these two words, but God. Everything changed for you on those two words. Everything changed for me on those two words, but God. And, 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 some, for, and some in this room today, everything can change on those two words, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. A God with endless mercy, a God with endless love, a God with endless, unmerited, unearned grace and favor towards us. The real walking dead made us alive together with Jesus Christ. He gave us new life. He gave us new status. Royalty, it says that now we sit in the heavens, in the high places with Christ Jesus because of this but God. He gave us new purpose, dedicating our lives to performing good works which he has set aside for us since the beginning of time. Why? Because of this but God, we have new life, we have new status, we have new purpose. And this is the gospel. And yet, if you leave it there, you haven't heard it all, believe it or not. There's something else in the last 10 verses that we just read that we all need to consider, and that is this. It, it, and rather, it is, it's, it's, it's so plain and it's so obvious, it is staring you in the face as you read the words off of the page. See, in our Americanized culture, most of the time when we read the Bible, we go to the Bible and we see ourselves in it. We see ourselves in it. We see me in it. We see I in it. God's wrath being stored up on me. God's mercy being shown towards me. God's love being poured out on me. God's son dying for me. God's spirit indwelling now me. God's gift of eternal life being given now to me. We see me in the text. However, this is not the way that Paul speaks in this text. Everything he says in describing this saving work that Jesus has performed has an us component to it. The great love with which he loves us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, raised us up with him in heavenly places. We, collectively, we are his workmanship. 
The gospel story is a reconciliation story, a story of a relationship being made right again, a story of enemies becoming friends. But it is not merely you and God that is happening in, but it is us that is happening in. Does that make sense? Reconciliation from God to man, but reconciliation from man to man. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The tie between verse 1 through 10 and verses 11 through 10 is that in order to reconcile all of us back to him, God begins by reconciling us back to one another. And together on the day in which he comes back, he's going to present us all back to him. Does that make sense? It won't just be you that he's going to present. Jesus is not just presenting you, but he's presenting us back to the Father. And so reconciliation has to be seen beyond your individual space, beyond your home. It has to be seen on a greater plane. It has to be seen on a global plane. It has to be seen cross ethnic lines. It has to be seen cross cultural lines. It has to be seen cross racial lines. He is completing a work of unity in order to bring back to himself one church. So the first 10 verses are about God reconciling us, a people, back to himself. But the second set of verses, the next 12, is about God reconciling us back to each other. We won't be presented back to God as a black church. We won't be presented back to God as a white church or an Asian church or a Hispanic church. We will be presented back to God as the church. Second point, our unity exceeds our ethnicity and our culture. So in verses 11 and onward, Paul describes how God is reconciling us together by using the same formula that he used in verses 1 through 10 and describing how God is doing it. He first describes what we were before Christ. Then he describes what Christ accomplished for our relation, through, his relation, through his dying for us, what he accomplished in our relationship. And then he describes who we are becoming now together that we are in him, right? It's the same thing that he did before. He talked about what our state was before God. He talked about what happens when Christ comes. And he talks about what he's continuing to do now that he has come. Now he's talking about it on this, ver or on this horizontal level, but the same formula. So Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, read it. Let's read it um, together. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul calls the Gentiles to remembrance. He starts from the top drawing them to the word uncircumcision, saying that, saying that is what the people who were circumcised used to call you. That was an insult, by the way. Does that make sense? You tracking with that? Do we need to deep dive this? I think everybody in the room knows what uh, circumcision means, right? Everyone knows what uncircumcision means. 
The Jewish people who were given the practice of circumcision as a means of setting themselves apart as the covenant people of God would often look at the others and call them the uncircumcision or basically call them the foreskin people. That's not good at all. Don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be called that. But even more interesting is that the Gentile people would look at the Jews and call them mutilators. So they both had really jarring and biting words for each other as it relates to these particular areas of our bodies. But even more gut-wrenching is what that distinction actually means for the Gentiles. And Paul wants them to remember what it means for them. First of all, it it means that it's total isolation from God's Messiah. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. At one time, you were separated from the Messiah without any knowledge of his presence nor any knowledge of your need for him. And and in Genesis 12, we hear God's plan to bless all the families of the world through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, which was the Messiah. But the Gentiles have literally no visibility of it. You were separated from Christ. But not only were they isolated in their relationship with Christ, but they were also isolated in their citizenship with the people of God. Paul continues, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Nothing would have rang worse in the ears of Gentile people than reading Paul or hearing Paul's letter read and hearing that they were a people without a nation. That's like calling, saying you have no identity. You are nobodies. Paul says that, that yeah, God had a favorite people, but it wasn't you. These are jarring words for the audience that's listening to them at the moment. Total isolation from God's Messiah, total isolation from God's nation, total isolation from God's promises. And he goes on and he says, and strangers to the covenants a promise. If you read through the Old Testament, it almost seems evident that, that, that all of God's significant promises seem to be, seem to be laid up for Israel. And that leaves all of us, all the rest of us in the world, Gentiles in the world, in a very curious situation because we are saying, okay, God promised to defend Israel. God promised to be their advocate, their defender. He promised to be their God. What, what does that leave for the rest of us who aren't Israel? The others in the room, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, it leaves you where what Paul says after that, having no hope and without God in the world. Total isolation from God's Messiah, total isolation from God's people, total isolation from God's covenant promises or promise, and total isolation from God himself. Now, let's take a moment and answer a really important question. Who are the Gentiles? Amen. Anybody related to the Deamports? <laughs> no, the Gentiles are pretty much all of us, more than likely, in this room. Non Jews were called 
Gentiles. So here's what's the, here's what's the interesting dynamic in, in American Christian culture, right? Is that, you know, we'll, we'll have a black church and we'll have a white church and then a black church will feel like we got the way that we're supposed to worship and a white church will feel like we got the way that we're supposed to worship. And, 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 and in some ways you'll go to some of these churches, not all of these churches. There are great black churches, there are great white churches, but some of these churches will present themselves as literally like we're the stuff, right? We're the stuff. Why? Because we're white. Or we're the stuff. Why? Because we're black. Now here's the interesting thing about it. Neither one of us are Jewish. <laughs> we, we, we both rocking in the boat of Gentiles. And so, and so here we are in this particular text, both in trouble. Our blackness, nor our whiteness, is enough. Your culture, your ethnic identity, what you think about the rest, what you think about worship, based on not necessarily scriptural, scriptural warrant, but just based on how you were raised. You know, I, I was raised to think about this when we do worship. That's cool. Doesn't mean anything, but it's cool. Does that make sense? Your blackness, your whiteness, and your cultural expressions that are all bundled up in that is not enough to present yourself to God. If you are building your hope on the fact that you are black or you are white, then your hope is empty. You are without hope in this world. Why? Third point. Our unity is established in Christ alone. Verse 13. He gives it to us again. But now in Christ Jesus. Beautiful words to our ears. But now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were without hope. You who were without a nation. You who were, with, who were without promise. You who were without the Messiah have been brought close to God. You who were far off have been brought close to God. And how so? By the blood of Jesus Christ. How so by your culture? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way you sing your music? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By whether or not you wear ties on Sunday? Or whether, you come, or whether you come rocking in like Bob Brown with a cowboy hat on Sunday? No, by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The peace that we need between us, right? The, the, the peace that we need between the like and the other. So, so what I mean by that is that everybody that's like us and then, and then needing peace between everybody that's like us and everybody that's not like us, the other. The peace that we need comes through him. Does that make sense? Christ does what no law could possibly do. He transforms the inner man, transforms the heart 
and allows us to come together. He humbles all men who see themselves as greater than the other. And he elevates all men who see themselves as lesser than the other. And they both find themselves at the foot of the cross, looking up to Jesus Christ for all of their needs, in particular their eternal. Does that make sense? He levels the playing field between Jew and Gentile. He levels the playing field between black and white and brings us all to equality. And only he can do it. So, so, so here's the thing. You say uh, that, that, that's what makes some of the statements that we make about race somewhat senseless, right? So we look at the 50s and, we, and the 60s and we say, listen, Brown versus Board was passed like in 58, man. This race thing is over. That's just like saying, hey, man, they outlawed, they outlawed prostitution like 20 years ago. This sexual lust thing is over, man. You tracking? Pass laws and it's done, right? People's heart change when we pass laws? No. So, so, yeah, you can pass whatever law you want. doesn't necessarily mean the heart has changed. How does the heart change? The heart has changed through our peace. He's the one who breaks down the walls of hostility. Now, let's not run too fast with that, right? Because some people want to say, well, the heart's changed. So since the heart's changed, we don't need to apply any rules. Why are we working on rules? Let's just work on the heart. Well, why do you tell people don't drive drunk? Why do you set rules for that? Because you're pushing back evil, right? So you're pushing back evil and exposing evil because the law exposes evil and helps humble people and bring themselves to, the, to, to understand their need for a savior by acknowledging what is right and what is wrong. Does that make sense? So you don't say, well, the heart's not going to change if we pass discrimination laws, so let's not pass discrimination laws. We don't do that with any other issue, do we? You tracking? So therefore, we understand that the heart does not change, but we are exposing the heart by pushing back evil with these laws that we, that we say, yeah, that, that's a good law. That's a right law. We should contest for that particular law. So Jesus is our peace, and, 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 and he is the destroyer of the wall. So in the temple, there were like four different areas where people gathered. So in other words, there are four places where walls kept people from getting a little closer. So you had the court of the priests. Only the priests could get in this room, right? And then there's a wall. And then you had the court of Israel. And only Israel men could get in this room. And then there's a wall. And then you had the court of women. And only Israel, Israelite women could get in this room. And then there's a wall. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. That's for everybody else. They could gather. That's where, that's where we will be, right? So, so we, we, we'll be, we would literally all be on the back of the bus in ancient Jerusalem, right? And so when Paul talks about destroying the dividing wall of hostility, picture the walls that were erected. The one that kept the priests from, uh, from direct inter, uh, interaction with God. The one that kept the Israelites from direct interaction with the priests. The one that kept the Israelite women from direct interaction with the Israelite men. And the one that kept everybody else from direct interaction from the others. And think about every single one of those walls coming down. So that all of us 
collectively, together, have the opportunity to come into the king of king's courts and to offer him praise and worship. Are you tracking with that? The dividing wall of hostility, all the walls that separated us from one another have been torn down. Now let me ask you a question. What walls are you erecting in, 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 in replacement of them? Right? Right? You, <laughs> you following? What walls are you putting up in replacement of them, right? Because that's what we do. Paul says, they're all gone. And you say, well, <laughs> hold on, Paul, hold on. We, we, we got this clothes wall we got to put up, you know, and, you know, suits, suits, and, suits and vests, right, and ties. We got to put that wall up. And hold on, Paul, we got one more wall we got to put up, you know, musical preferences. You know, we, we, clap on the, we clap on the second, on the downbeat, not on the upbeat. So let's, let's put that up, right? And, and wait a second, we got, we got one more wall that we need to put up, Paul. And, and before you know it, we've erected way more walls than existed before. What walls are you erecting? And even more importantly, are they built purely on your preference and your culture? He is our peace, and he's creating a new race of people. He says, Paul, Paul says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in, order, in, in ordinances. In other words, he, he, he abolishes those laws, so it's not up to you to create new ones, right, that separate us even more. He's abolished those laws that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So he abolishes them with the purpose of bringing us together as one. Are you tracking with that? That's why he abolishes them. So you know what you do when you erect them? You keep us separate. When you create laws that, that where there are no laws, you, you keep us separate. And so that's why we, that's why we say, hey, listen, you want to wear jeans? Wear jeans, Right? Want to wear a suit? Man, come in. Kill it. Kill it, man. Shine in your suit. Put us all to shame, right? We're good with that. Come covered and come comfortable. Whatever that looks like. We're good with that. Because we don't want to erect unnecessary walls that would divide us unnecessarily. Are you tracking with that? Because we don't want to get in the way of what God is doing, making one new man in place of the two. Peace to those far off, peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Gentiles need help, but it, it comes to light that so do Jews. That even though they're God's people, that even though they had the promises, that even though they had his laws, that even though they were called his nation, even though they, uh, God called him, their, his people in his, and, and they were called his, um, and they called him their God. That even they needed the help of Christ and his blood and the spirit and his indwelling. And so that puts even the Jews 
on the same footing as us, the Gentiles. We all are in need of this Savior in order to become one new person being presented to this one magnificent and holy God. Verse 19, he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So a new family. It's a new race of people, one race, one man, one new man, but it's also a new family, household, that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are one big family. The Bible calls us in Romans adopted, sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom. We're one family. You know what that means? That it's supposed to be hard. Does that make sense? It's supposed to be hard. You know, does anybody know a marriage that operates like this? So let's, let's, let's go back to the dating scene. We're dating. You know, it feels like we're compatible somewhat. And then, you know, okay, we start going a little counseling. Preacher says, mm, yeah, I'll make it maybe. I don't know. We'll see. And um, I hope the preacher doesn't say that. I hope the preacher gives a little bit more than that. But anyway, anyway, anyway he, 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 he says, all right, yeah, let's do this. We're going to marry you guys. And y'all get married, right? And we're, and we're rocking and rolling in day one. And then y'all come back from the honeymoon. Y'all spend a few days on the honeymoon. That went pretty good. And then y'all get home right and 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 you find out that you're different right you find out you find out that you're different poof all that dating stuff where you guys were like we got so much in common you find out no we don't we don't we don't we don't so what's the next move right when you find out we're not as much in common as we thought we were and you literally find out that like two days later right what what happens then you say all right, I guess this is it then. You go to your room over there, and I'll go to my room over here, and uh, we'll, just, um, we'll just meet up for dinner, and, um, then, and, and, and then that'll be it. Or better yet, do you say, this is ridiculous. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my house over here. You get your house over there, right? And, I, and, and, and every once in a while, we'll come together. We'll come together every once in a while, maybe once or twice a year. But listen, you just got a lot of different things that you enjoy doing, and that's fine. I'm cool with that. You do your thing over there. And I got a lot of different things I enjoy doing, so I'm just going to be cool over here doing my thing, right? Is that, is that how, you, this how you do marriage? That's family coming together, though. That's what, that's what marriage is. It's family being developed. So somehow or another, the reason that we do it in church is because we have yet to understand what church is. Church is family. Church is family. And so it's not a social club, right? This is not Knights of Columbus and, and Alpha Phi Alpha coming together and say, oh, well, you know, you guys don't do any stepping, so we're going to hang out over here and do our step thing, and then y'all can hang out over there and do whatever Knights of Columbus do. I, I'm not, I've never seen Knights of Columbus in action, so I don't know what they do. But whatever they do over there at Knights of Columbus, they're going to do. This is not a social club. This is a family. And so we say, yeah, okay, I get it. I don't like some of that stuff that you do, but I love you, and you're my brother, and what, and what you're doing is not anti-Jesus. 
So, so yeah, we can rock together. We can, we can build together. We can, we can grow together. And, yeah, it's going to be hard. And, yeah, you're going to test some of my patience. And, yeah, you're going to do some things that I'm not comfortable with. And, yeah, you're going to do some things that I don't necessarily like and enjoy. And, yeah, we're going to go to baseball games. And I don't like really – I don't like baseball. But Sid likes baseball. And so I'm going to go hang out with Sid. Because I love Sid. You understand? Are you tracking with that? Because we're family, we embrace the hardness of it. Just like you do with marriage. You embrace the difficulty of it. Nobody tells you that marriage is easy. And yet you do it. For the sake of love. And we should stop telling one another that this is going to be easy. But rather we do it, not simply for the sake of love of one another, but even for a greater love, for the sake of love for God. We pursue it. One household. And then lastly, one temple. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The whole structure, the Gentiles, the non-Gentiles or the Jews, the black, the blacks, black people, white people, coming together in the same space, being joined together, growing into a holy temple. Listen, listen. We are the temple of God. Are you tracking with that? The people, not the building, but the people are growing into his dwelling place. We're becoming the place in which he dwells. But we can't do it if we are more so committed to being separate and divided Versus being united as one. We, we, we aren't growing into multiple temples for him to dwell in. We are growing into one temple for him to dwell in. And so the commitment has to be to seeing the reconciliation that he died for and spilled his blood for come to fruition in our lives. While, while, while with all of our strength, we should be pursuing it. Amen. And so we invite, we invite what we're doing here. We pray for what we're doing here, man. We plead with God and say, God, make us one. And, 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 and literally, we think, like, every, every time there is a, there's a bump in the road in terms of, yep, that's going to probably be a black thing that our white brothers and sisters don't get, or that's probably going to be a white thing that our black brothers and sisters don't get. We literally think about, okay, how can we cross that road together? How can we cross that road together? Because, because listen, our oneness is more important than the discomfort you and I might feel just because we're different. I want God to dwell. I want God to make his abode, his habitat in our presence. Does that make sense? And so let us, let us be thankful. Let us be, let us be, let us, let us praise and worship our God 
Not simply because he has reconciled you to him, but he has reconciled us to one another so that we might be reconciled to him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Give you all praise, glory, and honor. We ask, Lord, that you would help us continue to navigate these waters, Lord. Help us understand what it means, Lord, to, to pursue a unity, Lord God, that reflects, reflects the temple in which you are building all across this world, all across your creation. Father, we want to be a dwelling place for you. Father, we want to be the family that you have called us to be. Lord, we want to be the one man, one new man that you have called us to be. So, Father, we thank you that it is in Christ, it is in our peace that the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down, Lord God. Let us, by your spirit, help us by your spirit, not erect more, but help us, Lord God, walk in the freedom that we've been given in you that allows unity to be established. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.